For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Maybe you be blessed by the reading of God's word. You may be seated. This morning, the title of this message is more, the, the message this morning is The Victory of Christ's Suffering. That's so beautiful that you sang that, Rob, as I was sitting there thinking, man, the, the sovereignty of God that you would choose that song as we go to this message. The victory of Christ's suffering. You know, we've been looking through, and uh, last week we looked at our suffering, and now this week uh, Peter's going to transition us into the ultimate suffering, Christ's suffering. This is the, the tagline to this message is, Christ's unjust suffering achieves God's victorious purpose. Do we realize that, that the purpose of God in Christ Jesus, the very purpose that Christ came was to suffer? Can we wrap our heart and minds around that, that the the God the Father sent God the Son, knowing that God the Father would send His Son to this earth for one purpose and one purpose only, that was to die. And it was to fulfill the great purpose. The great purpose that God the Father sent Christ the Son to walk this earth was that you and I, wretched sinners, would have a way back to God the Father. And all the suffering that Christ went through was for you and for me, wretched sinners, to have access to a holy God. Amen? And do we live that out? Do we take for granted the suffering of Christ? Like that song that you just sang, do we realize that we, you and I, sinners, apart from God, are the ones that nailed him to the tree? That you and I would hurl insult after insult to Christ Jesus, you and I. And yet he did it all the while knowing that his suffering would provide a way for sinners to be reconciled to God the Father, the ultimate purpose of Christ Jesus. And so this morning we're going to look at four things that Christ's suffering achieves or four victories that Christ's suffering achieved. The four are, Christ's victorious suffering is a sin-bearing. Because of his suffering, his suffering ultimately is sin-bearing. He bears your sin and my sin. That is the ultimate purpose of the suffering of Christ, that your sin would not rest on you any longer, but would rest on God, Jesus Christ. And then he's going to show us the great sermon, the victorious sermon of how this is true. This one line in this verse is going to set us as believers, as Christians, apart from everyone else. So the great sermon, the victorious sermon. And the, fourth, the third one is his victorious 
salvation. And the last one is his victorious supremacy. So let's look at chapter 3, verse 18. The first point this morning in Christ's victorious suffering is, is his victorious sin bearing. Let's read chapter 18, verse 1. Uh, sorry, chapter 3, verse 18, the first half of the verse. It says this, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Let me read that one more time. For Christ also suffered. So highlight in your, your Bibles, for and also. The for and also are going to point us back to what Peter just told us uh, in last week's sermon. That we, he, he suffered just the way that we suffered. He knows our suffering. For also Christ suffered. And here's the purpose for Christ's suffering. And here's how he suffered. The, the word suffered there in uh, 1 Peter chapter 8. In, in very uh, other translations is the word death. And so death or suffering as you see in this passage are interchangeable. It's not just suffering that goes away, but it's a, a suffering that ends with death. And so his suffering was death. And it, what's the kind of death that Christ died for us? The most brutal of all, crucifixion. I don't know if you've ever done a study on what it was like for a person to be crucified. It was the most wretched death in, in their time. You see, they would lay them on a cross, they would nail them to a tree, uh, they would bound them to the tree in such a way that they would asphyxiate, they would gasp for air, that's how they would die. Because they wouldn't have the strength to pull up. And can you imagine if as you're dying on a tree, with your arms stretched out and your dang, your, all your weight dangling on, your, on the on the nails, and every breath you had to do, you had to push yourself up. Well, how would you push yourself up? Through the, the, the pain and agony of the weight bearing on your wrist. So every gasp of air is the most horrific thing that any man could go through, and Christ suffered it on our behalf. And what would come at the very end, as we see in the Gospels, that they went to the two men on Jesus' side to make sure that they died. The reason they broke their legs is that they could no longer use their strength in their legs to push up to gasp for air. So just the agony of what Christ suffered for us. If you want to read in more detail, read in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. The agony of the cross. And yet he suffered it for us. And what did he suffer all of that for? In about seven weeks, we're going we're gonna to come and we're going to gather here for Easter. We're going to celebrate Easter. But before we celebrate Easter, we must celebrate Good Friday. See, the celebration really is in Good Friday. Because without Christ's death, you and I would have no one to pay the penalty for our sin. And so we really do come and we have to come and celebrate Good Friday with the long expectation of Sunday Easter, the resurrection of Christ. And so it says this, it said he suffered and died once for sin. Highlight that in your Bibles. That, that has huge ramifications. 
It may not seem that important to us today, but it had huge ramifications to the audience. Because if you remember, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is nothing but sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice so that the people of God could be in right standing before God. One commentator said this, in the day of Moses, in the day of Passover, that over a million animals would have been sacrificed on one day for the sins of the people. That every time a person sin, that they would have to go before the priest and offer a sacrifice to wipe away their sin. And now all of a sudden, Peter's saying, no, no, once for sin. Like Christ suffered once for all of your sins and all of my sins. I don't have to pay a sacrifice. The sacrifice has been paid for me. Or the, the, the weight of sin has been placed on someone else and not on me. The weight has been placed on Christ rather than on a goat or a ram. You see, we know that Christ is the ultimate sacrifice, and he died once and for all. Amen? Do we believe that this morning? And I don't mean do we believe it intellectually. I mean do we believe it in our spiritual hearts? Do we really believe that Christ has died once and for all, and if he died once and for all, you and I are free, we're free indeed for everything you've ever committed and ever will commit once and for all. Christ doesn't have to go back to the cross for you or for me. He paid all of it the day at Calvary, amen, once and for all. And who did he do it for? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says who he did it for, and really how he did it. It says in verse 21 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, For our sake, at yours and mine, the unbeliever, the unrepentant one, the sinner, for your sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Remember, Christ was the perfect sacrifice. You know, God has me in my quiet times reading through the Old Testament and time after time after time after time it talked about the, 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 the unblemished animal that had to be sacrificed, the perfect sacrifice, if you will. And he's saying here, the one who has no blemish, the one who has no sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. The weight of that one verse has huge implications for us this morning. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What for? What for? I hope you're asking that question this morning. What did Christ who knew no sin, become sin for me. What for? What would he do that for? He tells us in this passage, for Christ also suffered, also died, once for sin, that the righteousness 
for the unrighteous. Christ was righteous. You and I are unrighteous. The righteous died for the unrighteous. That what? That he, Jesus, might bring who? Us to God. The whole reason that Christ died, the whole reason that he took on your sin or bore your sin is so that he would give you an opportunity to come to God. I don't know if we understand the full weight of our sin. The full gravity of our sin. Whether it's murder or whether it's stealing from a cookie jar. All of it, all of sin, sin, the word sin means missing the mark. The mark is holiness. You and I will never achieve holiness apart from Christ Jesus. So God knew that. God sent his son Jesus to hit the mark for us. So what for? So that we might bring us to God. Remember the audience that Peter's talking to. The audience that Peter had been talking to would have been the Jewish people. The Jewish people, they had one way of getting to God. It was through the priest. And the only way the priest could get to God was what? Go into the temple. And even in the temple, there's marked off the Holy of Holies, where the priest would go into the Holy of Holies, pass through a veil that no one could see through, he couldn't see out of, and the presence of God would be in the Holy of Holies. And what the priest would do is take all the sins of the people and put them at the altar for their people to be forgiven. And now all of a sudden, it says this, oh no. Remember what happened on Good Friday. The veil in the temple was torn. That's so, that, that has huge ramifications for us as believers. We no longer, because of the death of Christ, need anybody to take our sins before God. We have the opportunity, because of what Christ did, bearing the sins on the cross, the veil is torn in half and gives us immediate access to God himself through Christ Jesus. Amen? You see, so when Peter says this verse, these first few words, for Christ also suffered once for sin, that the, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he, Jesus, might bring us to God. That all happens because of Christ's victorious sin-bearing for you and me on, on the cross, that he bore it all for us once and for all. Amen? Do we live what Paul says in Galatians 5.1? It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So live freely. Do we live in that freedom? If we don't live in the freedom, it's not because of anything Christ has not done. It's because we, what we do not believe. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with sin, you're struggling with addiction, you're struggling with pride, you're struggling with whatever it is in that line, you fill in the gap. It's not because Christ is insufficient. It's because our belief in Christ is insufficient. You see, if you're struggling today to be, live in freedom in Christ, it's not because of Christ. It's because of you and I believing the lies that Satan's going to continue to hurl at us. But Christ says, no, because of what I've done for you on the cross, once and for all, you're free. You're free indeed. Let us live free lives because Christ bore our sin. Amen? 
Point number two, Christ's victorious sermon. I believe this is the greatest sermon outside of the Sermon on the Mount that is ever preached because it's preached every moment and every day. This word, these words that Peter says are being proclaimed all day, every day. What does he say? In verse 18 through 20. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive. Circle the word alive in the spirit in your Bibles. In which he, Jesus, went and proclaimed or preached to the saints that were in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In which a few, that is eight, remember, it was Noah, his wife, his three boys, and their three wives, that's eight people, were brought into safety into the ark, were brought safely through the waters. So what is the greatest sermon that's being preached today? Highlight in your Bibles, having been put to death in the flesh. This, this leaves no doubt that Christ died. Like Christ, the, the man, the God, fully human, fully God, literally died. You see, there's all kinds of speculations in that day that, oh, he didn't really die. He kind of passed out. And when he passed out, they took him off the cross. And when they put him in the cold tomb, the coldness of the tomb kind of woke him up, kind of got him out of it. Some say he never died. He kind of faked his death. But Peter is saying, no, I was there. I saw with my own eyes. The man was dead. And yet what happens are so profound in the next words but made alive in the Spirit. Though his body died, his spirit never died. That is the thing that separates us from every other religion. That God, through Christ Jesus, never died spiritually. His body may have been taken from him, but his heart and his soul was never taken from him. He never fully died like you and I. He was alive. He is alive today. So when he preaches the word that, hey, I died, but I'm alive today, that gives conquer over sin and death. It's his resurrection that conquers the grave. Amen? And so the greatest sermon that is being preached is being proclaimed or heralded now that he is alive that he has triumphed death, that he has triumphed sin, that he has conquered all the things that Satan tries to rob us with. And so who is he proclaiming those things to? It says to the spirits. That, that means the, the fallen angels. That means to Satan himself. He's going now to the ones that fell, if you can read it in Isaiah, that, that decided, hey, their way was better than God's way. They, they fell. Satan became king and ruler over them, and he's going to them now and saying, hey, though you think I'm dead, I'm alive and well. And all those false um, testimonies you herald at my people, they're not true. I'm alive. I'm alive. I'm alive. I'm alive. And he's saying that to us today as well. You see, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Ephesians 6 says this, 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And that is where Christ Jesus goes in this very moment, proclaiming that he's alive in the darkness. He's going to bring light into darkness. And no matter how dark darkness is, when you bring light into it, it exposes everything. And so Christ being made alive is entering into the darkest of places and saying to the ones that have fallen away from him, oh no, death happens in darkness, but I bring life and I bring light into the dark places. I'm alive. And Christ Jesus is doing that in your hearts and in my hearts in this very moment. In the darkest of places in my heart, the exposure to the gospel, the gospel in my heart, penetrates the, the darkness and says, I'm alive. Even though Satan wants to alienate me and alienate parts of my heart to have them die, the gospel penetrates it with light and says, I'm alive and you're alive. Amen? You see, God indeed, indeed used the unjust persecution mightily for his holy purposes so that you and I would be alive. That's what Peter is saying. Point number three. Christ's victorious salvation. You see, he goes on and says that in chapter 20, because they formerly did not obey, that's the, that's the Spirit's, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, baptism which is, uh, co corresponds to this, now saves us, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God, a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ Jesus. And so we have the, a victorious salvation. You see, if you think about what he's saying, Peter is saying, hey, remember when the ark was being built? The ark wasn't built in a day. And God, through building the ark, was being patient with the people that were on the earth that he said, man, I need to wipe them all out. But the patience of God in those moments were so that they would repent so that he would not have to send a flood. But he said only eight Believe that to be true. You see, the great salvation, the great message of the gospel this morning for us is that we have a patient God. You see, salvation, God's salvation for mankind is very deliberate but very patient. We will read in 2 Peter chapter, two, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, it says this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as, come, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, this morning, God's great salvation for you and I is very patient. I had a mentor tell me this. It's going to happen one or two ways. God's either going to humiliate you or you will become humble. Either way, you're going to get drawn to God. God is not out to humiliate any of us. That's not God's heart. That's not God's desire. But God will allow humiliation to come 
for our ultimate salvation, but God is patiently waiting so that you and I would come to confession or what we, we call repentance. And God is patiently waiting for that. But there is a time that God's patience will run out. And when God's patience run out, look out. You just better hope you're on this side of it rather than the back side of it. Because when God's patience runs out, there is always judgment. We have to have judgment or we wouldn't have a holy God. But the great salvation is we have a very patient God. The whole time the ark is being built, the whole time Noah's out there proclaiming to the people, hey, God's going to send the flooding and God's going to kill you. God was using it as a patient way to bring them to himself and yet they rebelled. One writer said it this way, I love it. It says, the mystery of the divine providence is that God is absolutely sovereign. God is sovereign in control of all things. But his rule and his predetermination is never apart from human responsibility. That is confession and that is repentance. And yet it's the great salvation that God is patiently waiting for us. Then highlight this in your Bible. He's, he's using this uh, as an anti-type. An anti-type is a New Testament description of a e- uh, heavenly expression of an earthly reality. And so he says this, these things. He's given this analogous uh, example of Noah, that it happened. But he's going to bring it into the New Testament. And he says this, which cons- corresponds to this. To what? The salvation of Christ. And then he uses the word baptism. The word baptism simply means to be fully submersed, not just in water. So Peter is not talking about salvation that leads us to, to uh, or baptism that leads us to salvation, that leads us to eternity. What the word is he's using is that you and I would fully submerse ourselves into who? Christ Jesus. Are you baptized into Christ Jesus today? Fully submersed into him this morning. You see, to be baptized for us as Baptists is what? Full submersion. It means that you are going to stand in that, in that baptistry and you are fully going to go underwater. You see, if I just go in there and stand in that water and I, it's up to my waist, I'm not fully submersed in the water, am I? I could get in there and I get neck deep. I'm not fully submersed. And I wonder for us believers, church, Are we partially in the water? Are we partially in Christ Jesus? Or have we fully submersed ourselves into him? You see, that's the peace that we play in our salvation. Christ is not going to overwhelm us with himself. He invites us into himself and says, you are free to come into me as much as you want to. And he says, but be fully submersed into me. That's the decision you and I make every single day. Will we fully submerse ourselves into who Christ Jesus is and what he's done for us? And then he goes on to say this. That you would fully submerse yourself. That you would be baptized into Christ Jesus. As an appeal to God with a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ Jesus. You see, it's the resurrection of Christ Jesus 
that puts us from spiritual death to spiritual life. But we have to submerse ourselves into Christ Jesus, and we have to be fully submersed into him so that his full resurrection from death to life, that it would occur in you and I. Is that true for you this morning? Is that true for you and me this morning? The ultimate end of this passage is in verse 22. Who Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels, the authorities, the powers having been subjected to him. You see, Christ's death leads to Christ's ultimate victorious supremacy. You see, uh, in your Bibles, highlight the word, the right hand of God. The right hand of God simply means this. It's a place of privilege. It's a place of power. It's a place of uh, preeminence, a place of honor or worship or authority for all eternity. You see, Christ had to die. He had to suffer to be placed back into that place at the right hand of God. And because he's now his death, his suffering, his resurrection, he stands with all the power, with all the honor, with all the might. He is equal to God the Father. Turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. This is what Paul has to say about Christ's victorious supremacy, that he's on the throne that he rules today. You see, he's not just sitting there in the throne room of God. That word meaning he's at the right hand of God means he's sitting in rulership of all things. So he's beside God and has rule over all things. It says this in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him, Jesus, the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father forever and ever. You, you see, when Christ sits on the throne, he is ruling and reigning over all things. And when he rules and reigns over all things and draws people to himself, he's got the name that's above every name. Every knee's going to bow. And at the worship of Jesus, God gets all the glory is what this passage says to us. The writer of Hebrews says it this way about who Jesus is in this moment as he reigns supreme on the throne of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 through 6. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much more supreme than the angels, and as the name that is inherited and, and more excellent than any of theirs, this is what God says, for to which the angels, for which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I'll be to him a father and he shall be my son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all of God's angels worship him. You see, because God, through Christ Jesus, is on the throne, that's who we worship today. We don't worship an empty throne room. Because of Christ's suffering, because of Christ's death, because of 
Christ's resurrection and because Christ is now placed in the throne room of God, we come to God the Father through Christ Jesus and we worship a holy God. We could not do that without Christ reigning supreme over all things. Do we believe that this morning? You see, when we really begin to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we really do begin to believe that he is uh, sin-bearing for us and that he preaches the greatest sermon to you and I, that you and I are alive in him today and that you and I have great salvation in him and that we can worship a holy God because of all that God has done for us through Christ Jesus, our lives will be different. Our lives will change because the focus will get off of us and put on to his majesty, his supremacy, his victorious suffering. Again, I'll end the message this way. Christ suffered the ultimate death so that you and I would never have to. Let me say that one more time. Christ suffered the ultimate death, the ultimate separation from God. Remember he said that on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was in that very moment that Jesus was no longer one with God because of the weight of the world, the weight of sin was on him, and God the Father looked away from God the Son because of our sin. And because of that very moment, you and I will never have to experience the moment of being apart from God if we place our faith and trust and hope into Jesus Christ. Because he suffered for you. He died for you, and he is waiting for you patiently as he calls your name this morning to return to him. Let us remember the ultimate suffering Christ for you and me and our sins. Let me pray. You are victorious, Jesus. God, you, through Christ Jesus, invade those places in our heart and bring light into the dark places. And because you bring your light into those dark places, we today can have victory. Because it's nothing that we've done. It's nothing that we've achieved, God. It's all that you achieved through your son Jesus, who is the great victor, the great king, the great ruler, the great Lord, the great Savior. I pray, God, that you would constantly today, in the days that come, remind us that our sin has been put on to your Son, so that we would not have to feel that. And that he is alive and well, the great sermon. Pray that sermon would speak over our hearts this morning. God, you wait patiently for your people. So God, that's twofold. That's for anyone here this morning that does not know you. You are patiently awaiting them. But God, it's also true for us as the believer. God, if there's anyone in here this morning, if there's sin in their life, that today would be the day they come to the altar, they come before you and they confess that sin because you are patiently awaiting for their repentance. And the beauty of it is, God, when your people come to you in repentance, you forgive every time, no questions asked. So that's true for anyone in here this morning, God. That you draw them to repentance as you patiently wait for them. 
God, your great purpose was achieved by the suffering of your son Jesus. Let us be overwhelmed by that this morning. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.